You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. This is research for the real world. Conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to shape our everyday lives. This is Research for the Real World. I'm Sam Sims. I'm a lecturer at the UCL Institute of Education. And on today's episode, I'm talking to Chloe Marshall, Professor of Psychology, Language and Education in the Department of Psychology and Human Development at the Institute. Chloe researches language and literacy development, cognitive skills underpinning these processes and developmental disorders related to language and literacy. She also teaches on a wide range of master's courses and modules at the IOE. Chloe is the director of the Acquiring Language and Literacy in Challenging Circumstances Lab, otherwise known as ALEC, and sits on the management committee of the Center for Educational Neuroscience. She's also the editor-in-chief of the journal First Language. We're going to talk to Chloe today about how children learn to speak and read, why some children struggle with that, and what we can do to help them. Chloe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Sam. It's lovely to be with you today. Chloe, as I understand it, you began your career as a Montessori nursery school teacher. I mean, like most people, I've never attended a Montessori school. Uh, Tell us, what is a Montessori school? What was your time like working there? Well, Montessori education is probably less unique now than it was when it first started over 100 years ago. And there are two main features of Montessori education. So Montessori education is well known firstly for the the types of learning materials that children use. And the second obvious feature of Montessori education is the way in which children engage with those learning materials. So it's very much self-directed individualistic learning where children have long periods of time to work on things that they are interested in um, in a very self-directed way. Now a lot of those principles have entered mainstream education, but 100 or more years ago it was, it was a very unique way of teaching and a way of teaching that really makes the most of children's um, self-motivation and their desire to learn. And as I understand it, your move into academia was motivated by your kind of experiences working in Montessori schools. Uh, So tell us, you know, why did you decide to move from teaching three-year-olds in the nursery to, you know, 23-year-olds and above in the university? (laughs) Well, I hadn't really planned it that way. It was just how it worked out. So I was a Montessori teacher for six years. And during that time, I taught children between the ages of two and six. And I became fascinated in their language development. They would start with me in nursery at the age of two, not saying very much. And by the time I sent them off to big school, the majority were chatterboxes. And I wanted to know how that process worked. And I also wanted to understand a little bit about those few children in my class who just didn't seem to be making as much progress in terms of language development. And sometimes there was a very obvious reason 
for the fact they weren't making as much progress. So I taught children, for example, who had autism, children who had children who maybe just arrived in the country and so were taking a little bit longer to learn English. There were some children I just couldn't put my finger on what it was that was causing them difficulty with language learning. And I came to UCL, in fact, to do a master's in linguistics with the hope of better understanding how it is that children learn language and what I could do as a teacher to support them. And basically, I never left. I never went back into the classroom. I discovered linguistics at UCL, stayed on to do a PhD, stayed on to do a postdoc. And here I am. So tell us more about your PhD. What did you learn? Well, I was working with Professor Heather van der Lely, who's an expert in children with developmental language disorders. And I was looking at one particular difficulty that children with language disorders have, and that's with past tense formation. So as often the case in PhD, you take a tiny little area of research and you look at it in a lot of depth. I was interested in the grammatical problems that children with language disorders had. And from there, I went on to do a postdoc looking at the similarities between children who have dyslexia and children who have language impairment and thinking about dyslexia, although we know of dyslexia as a as a difficulty learning to read and learning to spell, thinking about some of the linguistic underpinnings of dyslexia. Interesting. And uh, as I understand it, you've done a lot of research on deafness and sign language. So how did you come to be interested in these topics? Well, I think if you study languages, you're interested in language in all its different forms. And sign languages are fascinating because they're obviously presented in a different modality to spoken and written languages. And as a master's student at UCL, I was introduced to sign languages through my lectures and wanted to learn more about them. And when I, at the time that I was doing my PhD at UCL, I was very fortunate to meet Professor Gary Morgan, who at that stage had a grant with collaborators to set up a deafness, cognition and language research centre at UCL. So I was able to join that group and start researching language development in deaf children and particularly focusing on sign language development and actually trying to investigate whether deaf children who are learning sign language can have a developmental language disorder in their sign. That was something that therapists and teachers of the deaf were telling us was possible, but it had never been looked at before. So that was a very exciting time um, in the mid-2000s when DECAL, the Deafness, Cognition and Language Research Centre, was set up. And I was able to bring some of my expertise in looking at developmental language disorders to thinking about language development in deaf children. Fascinating. And just for listeners, what do we mean when we use this phrase, developmental language disorder? Well, there are many different ways in which language development can go awry. So I mentioned earlier, for example, children with autism. There are some developmental syndromes such as Down syndrome, where language development can be affected. Developmental language disorder was commonly known for a while as specific language impairment. The idea being that this was a difficulty that was specific to language development rather than affecting other areas of cognition, rather than affecting more general intellectual ability. And children with developmental language disorder have difficulty with grammar, they also have difficulty learning vocabulary. They have difficulty both with the understanding of language and the production of language. This can affect their written language as well. And it's often known as a hidden disorder because teachers aren't particularly aware of it. Parents may not be aware of it. Estimates are that sort of maybe two children in a class of 30 will have developmental language disorder, but it might not be identified. These are often children who may be sitting in class, maybe not necessarily participating, not necessarily understanding the language that's being used in class. 
Wow. So one or two in 30. So, you know, most teachers can expect to have a pupil with a problem like this in, in, you know, at least some of their classes. So this is sort of relevant to everyone. Absolutely. And you mentioned that it used to be called a specific language impairment. Why have we moved away from that language? Is that not how it's seen anymore? Well, there's always been an argument over how specific it is. And this gets back to our understanding of the cognitive underpinnings of language, the how, the, how language is processed in the brain, um, whether language is a separate module that can be affected developmentally so that the only effects are on language itself, or whether language is part of sort of broader cognitive processes, in which case the specificity of a language disorder has, has been debated. And now the move is towards using the term developmental language disorder because that doesn't make any claims about the specificity of the disorder. But for many children, it's language which is the critical difficulty. And so I guess the specificity or potential specificity of this means that uh, perhaps this would be particularly hard to spot a developmental delay among deaf children. Is that right? Are there extra challenges in sort of diagnosing this there? That's exactly the point. Yeah, it's exactly the point. So, I mean, listeners may not know this, but the majority of deaf children are born to hearing parents, hearing parents who are not expecting a deaf child, hearing parents who know nothing about deafness, who've never seen deaf role models, who don't know about the vibrant deaf community, who don't know about, in our country, British Sign Language. And so many deaf children will grow up with a language delay Um, Even if they have a cochlear implant or a hearing aid, that assistive technology doesn't cure their deafness. It doesn't restore their hearing to normal levels. And so most deaf children, unless they're lucky enough to be born to deaf parents who are using a sign language at home, most deaf children are going to have delayed access to an accessible language because they won't be able to access spoken language clearly enough. And many of them may not encounter sign language until they go to school. So most deaf children, as I say, unless they're born to deaf parents who sign with them, most deaf children are going to have a language delay. And then the question is, can we identify a developmental language disorder on top of that delay? Um, Because it's very difficult to tease apart in those cases a language delay from a language disorder. We think that we did that in our study. Um, And there's a group of researchers in the States looking at American Sign Language who also have been able to identify cases of developmental language disorder in American Sign Language. Um, We've known from therapists and teachers of the deaf for a while that these children exist. The challenge is identifying them, working out what their difficulties are with learning language and ultimately working out how to support them. We've got a long way to go. Right. So I'm fascinated by this. So how, how have researchers gone about... Um, sort of distinguishing between deaf children who are, um, you know, a disadvantage with language acquisition because, you know, most people are speaking in kind of oral spoken language around them, uh, which they don't have access to or have reduced access to versus deaf children who also have some sort of developmental, you know, language problem. So I should clarify that we were looking for developmental language disorder in deaf children who sign. So I should just clarify that. Right. Actually, we relied at the start of our project when we were identifying deaf children who with developmental language disorder, we were relying very heavily on the expertise of teachers of the deaf. So teachers of the deaf who have taught many children over the years who know amongst that cohort of children who might be from hearing families and therefore suffering from delayed language input, 
they still have an expectation of what typical language development would look like for those children. And so we relied very heavily. We surveyed um, services and schools for the deaf, and we relied on that expertise from professionals. And then we thought about, well, what are the markers of developmental language disorder in spoken languages? And we know that these children, as I've said before, have difficulty with vocabulary learning, have difficulty with grammar. So we thought about what that might look like in a sign language like BSL and develop some language tasks, some sort of language assessments that we could we could use with these children. It's a very long process and we're, we're far from having a complete understanding of what these children's language development might look like. That's partly because we know very little about deaf children's sign language development anyway. We don't have that wealth of evidence that we have for a majority spoken language like English. And BSL, is that, is that British Sign Language, Chloe? Sorry, yes. British Sign Language is BSL, absolutely. So different countries have different sign languages. Right, right. I'm learning a lot here. Thanks. <laughs> and so the assessments that you developed, were they administered in British Sign Language? How did you go about doing that? Exactly. So we were looking at tasks in British Sign Language. So one of the tasks that's used um, in spoken languages is a task called sentence repetition. And in a sentence repetition, you would say a sentence like the boy and the girl played in the park and the child would repeat that. And a child with language difficulties will find that harder to repeat than an age match peer who has typical language development. And so what we did was we created a sentence repetition task, but in British Sign Language in BSL. So the deaf children watched a video of, of our deaf colleague um, signing BSL sentences and they had to repeat them. And we had a control group of children whose language development we were not worried about and our group of children who we thought might have developmental language disorder in their sign and we, we compared them. And indeed our children that we suspected had developmental language disorder found these sentences harder to repeat. So they missed out signs, they model signs about, they inserted the wrong sign, or they just refused to repeat the sentences altogether. Right. So 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 in a way your your data from your assessments sort of corroborated the sort of expertise and the sort of survey data from the teachers that you had uh yeah surveyed. Absolutely. We should never underestimate the, the knowledge that professionals bring and the expertise that we can tap into there. Absolutely. That was one of the tasks. We, we had other tasks as well. Um, narrative tasks, for example. So telling a story, telling a narrative is something that we know children with spoken developmental language disorder find difficult. And that turned out to be the same for our deaf children um, with developmental language disorder, too. They didn't have difficulty so much with the overarching construction of the story, the explanation of what was going on. It was more at the grammatical level and choosing vocabulary. And BSL is a language which is set out in space and you have to use space according to certain conventions. And it was those conventions that they found um, a little bit more difficult than we would expect given their age. And, and so you said we're, we're kind of at the, uh, you know, we've made a lot of progress, but we're at the early stages here. I mean, what do we know about uh, kind of how we can help deaf children with developmental disorders develop their language skills? Well, I can't give a very good answer to that because I'm not a speech and language therapist. But it raises the question as to whether what these children need is more sign language input or whether they need sign language input of a different kind. 
So if these children really do have a language learning disorder, maybe more of the same input is not what they need. Maybe they need a different type of input, an input which is carefully crafted um, to their needs. How interesting, how interesting. And I think you've been in, involved in some work, Chloe, developing a sort of toolkit for teachers and other educators around uh, deaf awareness. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. Well, this is work that's led by my colleague, Dr. Manjula Patrick at the Deafness, Cognition and Language Research Centre. We're developing a course. Um, as I said earlier, many teachers will not come across a deaf child in their teaching or just come across one or two deaf children and therefore don't really feel well equipped as to how to how to support the deaf child and maybe very unaware of the communication needs of the deaf child, maybe unaware of the need, for example, of deaf children to speech read, so to be able to look at the lips and the jaw movements and use those to supplement the residual hearing that they may have and the hearing that they get through their amplification device. Um, they may not be aware, for example, of the difficulties that deaf children have in following a, a multi-speaker conversation. So deaf children will need to look at the face and during a conversation with several people will need to reorient. So what we're doing with this toolkit, it's going to be an online self-paced learning module that teachers and education professionals will be able to take. And it's going to be freely available and it's going to be launched sometime in 2021. It's been a little bit delayed by COVID, but then so many things have. And the idea is that, well, the majority of, of this module is actually presented in the words of deaf people themselves. So we have a lot of interviews with young deaf adults who have just left education and who are able to reflect on the challenges that they had, either when they were in a special or in a mainstream school, but the challenges that they had um, communicating with teachers and communicating with their peers. We're also drawing on the expertise of teachers of the deaf, including deaf teachers of the deaf. And we also have um, interviews with a deaf parent of one hearing child and of one deaf child. So we get the parental view as well. So it's these interviews, these video clips, which are going to form the bulk of the course um, with some information around, around that. That sounds fantastic. And how can people find that, Chloe? What should they Google or where can they go to access this resource? Not available yet, I cannot tell you, but the Deafness Cognition and Language Research Centre will host a link to it. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Okay. Watch this space. Okay. So you mentioned there, Chloe, about one of the videos featuring uh, the parent of a deaf child. I think you've also researched how the parents of deaf children learn to sign. What have you found in your research there? Oh, well, let me go back a few steps. So we know very, very little about how hearing adults learn a sign language. And when hearing adults are learning a sign language, they're not just learning a new language, they're learning a language in a new modality. So obviously, when we speak, we move our hands around, we do co-speech gesture. But the point with sign language is that the movements that these hands make are conventionalized. 
And so those conventions need to be learned. So people who are learn hearing adults who are learning a sign language are learning not just a unilanguage, but having to use their hands in a particular way. And not just using their hands, but using multiple articulators. So sign languages involve the eyes and eye gaze. They involve the eyebrows. There's information on the mouth. There's information through facial expression, through the, the turn of the torso, um, the way that the shoulders are facing, for example. So it's a very different type of language, and we know very, very little, even though many hearing parents of deaf children will want to learn to sign, and indeed many hearing adults will be interested in learning sign because it's a fun language to learn, or they may want to train as a sign language interpreter or as a teacher of the deaf, but we know very little about how these people learn a sign language. And it's really important that we understand this. It's really important that we understand how learners learn so that we can teach them better. Sign languages are just as challenging to learn as spoken languages. And so that means that the, the language input, the sign language input that parents are providing to their deaf child might not be grammatical, might not be rich in terms of vocabulary. And so we need to teach people how to sign better. But at the moment, we don't even know how they learn sign language. So the project that I'm running is at the very early stages of trying to understand how it is that hearing adults learn a sign language. You mentioned there, Chloe, the importance of um, gestures and expressions and the information that the mouth carries even for deaf people. I mean, at the moment, a lot of us, you know, for public health reasons, are covering our mouths with face masks in order to stop you know, transmission of infection. What implications does that have for deaf people? Well, it obviously has very strong implications because the sound is muffled and those visual cues are not there. But in fact, there are implications more generally because pretty much all of us rely on being able to speech read in order to supplement that, that auditory stream, which, as I say, will be muffled with a face mask. We've been doing some work with young children. We started this project long before COVID, but we've been interested in the many cues that parents and caregivers use when they communicate with children. And by cues, I mean things like parents using their hands to point at objects, using their hands to manipulate objects when they're talking about them, using their hands to produce gestures which represent the object in some way, but also using their voices, so modulating their voices to have these sort of big intonational contours to speed up or to slow down their speech, to use certain words like onomatopoeic words, by that we mean Sort of animal noises, sound effects, words which sound like what they refer to. Parents have a whole toolkit of cues that they use in order to facilitate language learning and in order to facilitate communication. And we've been thinking about how it might be useful for caregivers and for parents in a time of face mask wearing to think about how they can capitalise, how they can use these resources to affect effective communication and effective language learning. Um, so, yes, the, these cues are really, really important, particularly at a time of, of mask wearing. Yes. I mentioned at the start, Chloe, that you're involved in the Centre for Educational Neuroscience. And I know that some of your research has looked at the relationship between language acquisition and executive function. Uh, can you tell us, well, firstly, tell us what executive function is and what that research, uh, what you've learned from that research? Absolutely. So again, this is research that we've carried out with deaf children 
and hearing children. And executive functions are those skills that you need in order to be able to plan and carry out a complex task. So executive functions enable you to see a task through and they're particularly important in a school context. So you would use your executive functions, for example, if you're needing to write an essay, if you're needing to work through a set of maths problems, if you're needing to carry out a science experiment. So executive functions are absolutely critical at school. And we know that some children who are deaf might have lower executive functions than would be expected given their age. So that's not the case for all deaf children by all means. So deaf children who are born to deaf parents who are learning to sign tend to have age appropriate executive functions. But those deaf children who have, for whatever reason, a language delay tend to also have delayed executive function development. And our research project was interested in looking at this relationship between language and executive functions. So some researchers have argued that it's language development which drives the development of these important executive function skills. And other people have argued that it's the reverse, that it's executive function development that drives language development. And if you don't have strong executive functions, you're going to have difficulty learning language. And of course, there's also an argument for it being a bidirectional relationship. And in order to answer this question, we looked at a large group of deaf children and a large group of hearing children, and we followed them over two years. And we assessed them at those two time points, at two years apart, we assessed a lot of executive function skills. Importantly, we assessed these skills through nonverbal tasks. So these were all visual, spatial and nonverbal tasks. And we also had measures of their vocabulary at those two different time points. And so looking longitudinally, we could see that actually it was children's we had vocabulary as a measure of language, so it was their vocabulary development which was driving their executive function development. And that's really important when we're thinking about the language development of deaf children, that importance, again, of a really rich language learning environment for children so that that will also boost those academically important executive function skills. I mean, you may be aware that there's been a lot of research on trying to develop interventions for children's executive function skills. So, for example, computer-based games, which will boost working memory, for example. And the difficulty with those tasks is that they don't, they don't really, the benefits don't really seem to transfer across to other areas. And our findings are important because they suggest it's language that you've got to work on. If you work on deaf children's language, that will boost their executive functions. Right. So this idea of transfer, if I understand this right, Chloe, the idea is, you know, we can sit sit a kid down with this sort of computer game that's designed to train them on a task which is uh, demanding for their executive functions. And generally, we can, you know, we can show that they get better at the executive functions involved in that specific task or game. But then when we test whether it helps them kind of plan an essay or a different task, you know, the, the benefits don't seem to, to sort of transfer over, right? But you're saying that, you know, that's exactly right. Rather than doing this kind of brain training stuff, which doesn't seem to have kind of generalized benefits, we might be better off just focusing on kind of language acquisition on the grounds that that actually supports a more general or potentially supports more sort of general development in executive function. That's exactly right. And part of the motivation for thinking about things that way around is that deaf children born to deaf parents who are growing up with sign language from the start tend to have age appropriate executive functions. So in a sense, that language training that they've had from birth has been supporting their executive function development. I mean, the other reason for working on language enrichment is that language is in itself incredibly important for academic success. 
Right, in and of itself. In and of itself, absolutely. Um, you know, for literacy learning, right. for maths, um, it has a huge range of, of benefits. Social development, emotional regulation, it's absolutely central to everything in our lives. Yeah, and I guess this is the point you were making about the, them having a sort of bi-directional relationship such that language uh, helps improve executive function and then executive function might help you, you know, write a complicated essay when you're in secondary school or something like that, which is, you know, then reflected in your in that essentially sort of language-based skill of writing. Absolutely right. That's why we always need to think about language and cognition together. Absolutely. Chloe Marshall, I've learned so much from talking to you today. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure, Sam. Thank you very much. You can find more about Chloe's research by following her at Chloe R.U. Marshall on Twitter, and you can find links to her research in the show notes. If you have questions or topics you'd like to us to address in future interviews, also follow the links in the show notes and record your question there using either voice or text. And as an added bonus, you can find the Research for the Real World playlist featuring tracks contributed by previous guests and producers. That's also in the links. Follow the links to Spotify. I'm Sam Sims, and this has been Research for the Real World. Goodbye. for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 